Hi, this is Ashley Farode, and you're listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. Dave Caffrey is the guest on this specific episode. And Dave is going to be talking about all the things that matter to him, specifically cultural development, art, music, society, philosophy, and of course, Canberra. Now, Dave is the founder of Dionysus, which is a cultural agency based in Canberra that works on various artistic, musical and other events, many of which you probably would know and many of which you wouldn't know that Dionysus was actually involved in. If you're interested in the world of culture, specifically that of Canberra's, and philosophy, then this is most certainly the podcast for you. Now, I've mentioned philosophy twice in that intro because it does form a big backbone of the conversation that Dave and I have. But don't worry, it's nothing heavy. In fact, he's probably the best example of how philosophical thinking can be applied to everyday life. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group, the legends who make this entire series possible. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dave Caffrey on Behind the Bio. Hi Dave, how are you going? Hi Ash, I'm wonderful, thank you. That's good to hear. Thank you for making the time. We're sitting in the Dionysus uh, offices, right? This is still your office? Yeah, it's a co-lab room. So there's a wonderful selection of firms that um, yeah. work in the top floor of the pavilions and then we're in the den underneath. Near the den, yeah. No, it's, it's not a den, it's a very classy <laughs> office that we actually should probably talk about at some point during this conversation because it's got a very you feel about it. In fact, you have a particular brand attached to you, which I'm sure you never describe as a brand. I'm pretty sure it's not intentional, but completely organic. A love for Velvet and Elvis surely is a brand. Yeah, exactly. And and I remember when I spoke to you uh, quite a long time ago, I was kind of saying, is the 70s the decade that you truly resonate with, right? It is the 70s, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you said, well, is there a better era? It's true. Right. The music, the love. Exactly. And, and you've got a vibe about you that I think is, is very much of that, but it's also a very expressive kind of thing. And, you know, you, you mentioned in a den, but it's not a den. It kind of feels somewhere between a lounge and a cocktail bar and an office and a home. It's all those things kind of mixed up together. Which yeah, is the idea of a home, I think, is really uh, important. Uh, from a philosophical perspective, everyone wants to be feeling like they're at home mm. and uh, we work all the time. So if you feel comfortable, then it's, it's a great place to be. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. And, and I've been to your home as well and it has a relationship kind of visually and aesthetically very much to what your office is like. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the clothes that you wear, the, the haircut that you've got and everything else, it most certainly has that kind of tap into the 70s, but without it being ungenuine. You know, you haven't just picked up a style and went, oh, I dig this, I'm just going to wear it. It just seems to be you. And you even said the word philosophy a moment ago. It seems to be just very much part of who you are and how you express yourself. Uh, that's super sweet of you. I just like to have fun and um, I love the colour red. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's because I'm colour deficient and I can't see all the other colours that well. <laughs> Oh, that makes sense. Well, hey, um, there's heaps of things I'm going to talk to you about, but maybe let's start at the very beginning because that's a good spot. For those that don't know you, and I would hazard the guess that most people that are going to listen to this podcast will go, yay, he's finally got Dave on. I prefer the anonymity. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, tell me, I mean, were you born here? If not, where did you come from, so no. to speak? Where did you study? What was the path in terms of higher education before you did everything that you did now, which is obviously owning the cultural agency? Sure. Uh, born in Melbourne, actually. Mum... Mom- 
spat me out there and my first ever memory is getting pushed in a pram past the um, National Gallery of Victoria with the fountains when they had those huge big animal sculptures you might remember them that's actually my first memory and um, of course fast forward 34 years which is my age now and uh, oh shit no I got turned 35 recently (laughs) how time disappears um it's because I didn't have a big party. It didn't quite I mean, register yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, COVID ate like two years of everybody's life. I know. And, uh, but I think it's, uh, it's telling that those artistic forms are something that um, influenced my, at least my memory from the first instance. And, um, you know, I have a real affection. I was at Rising Festival last week and I saw those, one of those sculptures distributed near Yarra and um, it all rushed back to me and uh, that was a bit of a homecoming for me. Mm-hmm. But no, I left when I was four to a remote Indigenous community that my mum was documenting the language for mm-hmm. and um, I was the first white kid in a tiny little community that no one knew called on blutter watch but now in the arts world that's a big deal i mean in international indigenous art sales on blutter watch is punching well above its weight um so it was interesting to see the very start of that when i was super small um grew up in other springs and um <laughs> i like to say that i learned to party there because there was nothing else to do other than throw house parties so um i think it was about 300 people at my 18th and um which was a collaboration actually and that's what I love to do is to collaborate with different people still. And so we, we hide out the showgrounds and, um, and of course, the police came in their um, mass vehicles to empty everyone out at midnight. Um, it seems that some things don't change. <laughs> Um, I think you have a better relationship with the law these days, but sure. <laughs> oh, no, it was all above board. It's just they wanted to make sure they get, yeah. get run out before before things got too big. I mean, it, it was a perfectly well-run event. All our dads were security guards. It was it was good fun. So it was that sort of small-town country upbringing that um, I think influenced my desire to be in an intimate and cultural environment on a regular basis. And um, I came here for ANU's philosophy department, which was an amazing institution in the country. Um, it has changed a bit since. But uh, continental philosophy was my bag, studied cultural philosophy specifically and how when you grow up in a culture, how that influences your values and um, what you perceive to be meaning and then the decisions that you make and then that how influences culture again and you get the feedback cycle out of that. Um, so I learned all that from um, Dr. Fiona Jenkins, who's here, now a professor, and um, was heavily influenced by all the DJs at ANU and um started the Univibes, which was initially the Philosophy Society. It's just after the first year um, we decided to engineer happiness, which is the bringing together of the two cultures of science and and the arts. And um, so we thought we were clever by doing that. (laughs) Instead of doing Philosophy Society, we just started a party society. But actually, we just wanted to party, let's be honest. And um, I'm happy to say Univibes is still going. That must be a good... 16 years ago mm. um uh though most of the anu's physical places where we did those events has changed and house festivals are not so much a thing anymore which um i'll define was the um a minimum of three stages and 400 people in a house it was a house festival as opposed to a party and um and that that was yeah hugely influential on where i wanted to take my life and what i wanted to do for for the community that i loved so much at the time mm. and um and through a, a number of 
junctures that I didn't expect to go left or right on and I skipped over the roundabout sometimes and found myself right here. Yeah, but you must have picked up some kind of business sensibility along the way too. I mean, what you're running now, most certainly I can see the relationship to the kind of cultural education that you got um, and also you know, the politics and the philosophy and other bits and pieces. And clearly the music aspect of it is very strong. I can definitely see the dip into the arts and your understanding of all of that. What about the business? Like to run a business is yet another completely different skill. Did yeah. it just kind of come naturally or did you learn that on the ropes, so to speak? I think with, with philosophy, you, you understand what you want to do and then you learn what you need to learn to get there. And I recognized that in a capitalist society, even though very early on, I obviously wanted to reject that idea of philosophy like a lot of students mm. were in the early arts of um, early arts um, degrees. And it just doesn't make sense. It's not equal. It doesn't give everyone the life that they necessarily wanted. Um, that so then we realized they couldn't change the world unfortunately and also in the same realization decided there's no point writing books and essays because they don't change the world either because there's so many amazing books and essays that um but still today we've got wars and we've got um disproportionate living standards and gender inequality etc there's so many issues that have been written about since the 60s 70s um, in, in, in heavy ways. So decided to actually live the, the change that I wanted to see. And that's not going to change everything around me at all, but it, I, I'll do what I can. And then in doing that, recognize that we've got to work in a, um, in a financial system. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I did get some mentoring around business, learned how to pitch. I uh, did some capital investment, um, pitching and actually raised a million dollars for a music and arts venue when I was about 24. Um, then one investor fell over in the very final meeting when we're paying these lawyers 600 bucks a minute or whatever it was. And, uh, in this final meeting, when there was already most of the money in escrow, um, one investor had negative geared himself too heavily and said to the room, which was the only time we ever had all the investors in the room, he said, no, I can't do it. And he was a $150,000 investor. And that collapsed the entire deal that we'd been working mm-hmm. on for about three years. And all the money got sent back from the escrow account. And um, we were left looking at our fingers going what do we do now? (laughs) And um, after that, I decided not to run a venue, but to um, dedicate our time to an events and and cultural programming firm instead, Um, which in hindsight was a really good thing because it means that I'm not tied to a single place. I can look around and work with a huge diversity of artists and collaborators and and, um, engage with wider audiences rather than having to bring people back to my brand all the time. Probably a lot of people in Canberra have been to events that I've been responsible for, but they don't know that Hmm. it's Dionysus and that's intentional. Yeah. And also the thing is you've kind of found a niche where at least in the development of Canberra, the cultural agency thing, I mean, I couldn't think of another one at that point, nor can I really think of one right now that's kind of your biggest competitor. So I think if what you've done is quite cleverly got yourself out of the bricks and mortar of running a venue, which has its own particular headaches attached to it. But also what it means is that apart from the freedom that you've gained, 
you've actually found a perfect niche in the market that was really needed here to be able to facilitate events, cultural things, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's a big gap. And um, I've never really publicly said that it's madness that no one else has been doing what we're doing at the moment. Um, it has evolved really quickly, though, and it's a new, it's an emerging field called mm. place management, um, which is under the wider umbrella of placemaking, which I think most people would have heard of by now. But even that's a relatively new term um, rather than, building buildings developers have worked out that people actually want to live in places or in, in places that feel like home um well they're engaging and not just financially stimulating for, for the owners um that was part of the outcome the the scenario that we recognized but then the other side of it was that one-off events aren't creating rituals they aren't creating the habits we want to see in our society or in specifically what forms our culture yeah. um, and then there's a whole range of intervene in, um, interventions you can do between there such as installations you know cu- curating public art that are both ephemeral and permanent um, having roving performances through an environment that aren't necessarily part of a bigger festival or event um, there's a lot of smaller events that, that are actually programs and so for, for example we run a pause party in Hague Park and that's a really nice opportunity for elder and younger people to come together around their dogs mm-hmm. it's not something that anyone would dedicate their career to starting one of those but when you've got a situation like we are where we're looking over a, a lot of precincts and a lot of event programs at the same time we can dot them in and use our event management systems just to make sure they're going to run really smoothly um, for example we've got um, new dog agility gear being made up at the moment for this Saturday's event and that's just something we can throw into a system that we've created yeah. Um, but then that's been hugely supported by um, Malonglo. I want to credit them for helping me recognise that there is a demand for something like this. Yeah. And then also the City Renewal Authority have um, created an entire industry of place management through mm-hmm. their recognition of the need for placemaking in the city. Speaking of Malonglo, I did a podcast with Jonathan, um, or Yanni, I should say, actually. Uh, FKPD's a while back, uh, which was actually a really popular episode. And one of the things that he spoke about is, you know, he is a developer in, in the true sense of the word. But really what we got to very quickly is that what his real driver is, is the understanding of how people interact with spaces for an ongoing period of time. And what you're talking about, so any of the place categories that you just mentioned, is actually the same thing. It's just that you're not talking about the structure around it, but rather the event. And all of that creates a culture and a community and a feeling and, you know, psychologically and otherwise. So I completely get the link between your organization and, and Anglo as well. Um, speaking of which, you could have quite easily made a mark somewhere else, a cultural place like Melbourne, for argument's sake. Do you think the fact that there was a gap in Canberra is the thing that was almost like the perfect opportunity for you? Or was it because you loved Canberra and you wanted to change this place? What's keeping you here? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's no doubt that the fact that there's a lot of opportunity here is was a factor. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people that have recognized they can make a career here. Um, but also it's a bit more of a blank canvas in terms of what that culture will look like. Um, it was said of Australia's culture in a, in a paper I read a while ago. It said, um, Europe is steeped in history. And so its culture will only ever be um, in the line that it was set historically. Uh-huh. Whereas Australia's culture is extremely fresh. Um, its history is not as, um, 
marred in requirements that say European and religious based history that, um, that Europe has is, is not holding back Australia to be a certain way. And we have the opportunity in Canberra to, because it's even younger than, um, that, that cultural history that we grow up in today. Now, of, of course, we've got to and we it's a shame we have not recognized indigenous history in that conversation mm-hmm. enough yep. in in our lifetimes that's not been something we've done enough of but but the benefit of this philosophy is that there's we're not stuck like europe is in a certain trajectory and we can make changes and we can make changes in ways that are um much more meaningful perhaps that will also result in a more unique cultural identity in the future. I think that's true for Australia and I certainly hope that we take a strong turn towards recognising Indigenous culture in our today's culture. Which will form the basis of then future progress and future change and future it alignment. It will create a complete unique yeah. cultural identity for us on this planet yeah. and, and I think a, a Canberra is in a relatively similar place but it's got that extra layer and answer to your question I was really excited about the national identity being represented by this city. So if we make some sort of um, statement as a culture about who we are we're kind of speaking for Australia at mm. the same time and I think that's a really evocative opportunity that I was enamored with um, and one that I think a lot of people who do um, live and work here are interested in you know we probably read the national news a bit more than a lot of the other cities yeah. um, um, and that's because we kind of do feel a bit of a responsibility as being the nation's capital for better or worse and I, I think uh, in I'll just wrap that up by saying that this new national voice that the federal government are talking about for Indigenous population is so important for Canberra because that will really help. You know, Canberra's a very white city. Mm. We often are programming events and we're, we're, we, we program it for the best outcomes in terms of, uh, say, if it's a music program, what's the flow of the music and how's it going to work? But, of course, we're thinking about all these other um, representative factors and it's so hard to have Indigenous culture represented across the diversity of the programs that we're doing. It is just hard um, and I wish it wasn't. We're doing our best to, to um, support that change. But by having a national voice enshrined um in Canberra, in Australia, that's going to create all these flow-on impacts. Like it'll be like a domino across the country, where falling, 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 and different events will just suddenly have new, not only new funding, but new people around to represent this this changing cultural identity. Yeah. And so that changing cultural identity is is what I was most interested in seeing. You spoke a little bit earlier about you and your fellow classmates doing philosophy, and kind of realizing that perhaps writing essays and opinion pieces and what have you just isn't going to have the ultimate reaction that you wanted it to. Now, there are people out there who would argue with that saying, but it's really important because even if one or two people read that essay and it changes their mind or broadens it, then you've achieved an outcome. And the volume of those things ultimately provides a bigger change. So I don't want to discourage anybody out there writing an essay about some cultural change or whatever, thinking this isn't going to do anything, I'm going to give up. But what you're saying is you found a vehicle through the work that you're about to do at that point that could essentially provide you with change around you. But tell me this, like in a summary, therefore, what is it that you're trying to change or you're hoping to change through the work that you do? Okay. Um, Depends on the context that we're talking about. We work in a lot of different contexts. Um, But to create a more critical and happy society. Mm -hmm. 
in any way we can influence. I mean, we, a culture, according to our definition, would be, if you can imagine, millions of dots that are constantly moving and they're interacting with each other. We can push, for, we are dots and we can push some dots in some ways and, and that will hopefully create flows. Now, the more resources and opportunity we've got for programming different events and putting new installations into the city and working with hundreds and hundreds of stakeholders, which is exactly what we do, to, um, to talk about a new thing that we're going to do in the city or a, a new festival that we're going to start. And that festival represents the cultural identity that we, our collaborators and us, because we always collaborate, um, want to see in a couple of years. Then those will be peak points for those places, hopefully, um, if they're done well. And hopefully that other people will then think about those cultural issues in a slightly different way. That's what we're hoping to do. It's just to get stimulate other other perspectives on current issues, or to to support the um, the raising of some issues. So climate mm-hmm. change was one that we've we've been in the background of for quite some time in terms of just making sure that sustainability is a big issue in say art not a part in 2012. Yeah. Um, and obviously that was a part of a cultural movement, and um, I'm happy to stoked to have worked with so many artists that wanted to see the, exactly the same thing. Um, we're just in a unique position where we've helped create um, physical and financial platforms where those artists can say that and where we're supporting them to say it in bigger and louder ways. So the one that I'm seeing, and I'm sorry if I'm simplifying it here, but it's almost like you take, say, for example, a festival, which is a cultural expression, and there's entertainment involved in there and a fair bit of thinking as well. In other words, it's not just entertainment for entertainment's sake, the idea is that people come experience something and think about what that really means. Mm. What you're doing there is changing kind of the mindset of a community a little bit or adjusting it. And through that, those actions of the community impact on an individual and therefore you're addressing the individual that way. Yeah. Is it that kind of... Yeah, I mean, I, I see the individual and the culture as a chicken and an egg. Um, you've, the, they completely influence each other. Maybe give an example, yeah. um, collaborating with UC and um, Dr. Kathy Hope, who I have endless respect for. Um, they were, we, we formed a consortium and worked with the City Renewal Authority on Hague Park. And this was, um, the consortium was formed in the end of 2018. And that's when Hague Park was euphemistically known as Rape Park, unfortunately. And it was um, not a place that anyone would hang out in. I actually still live up across the road from it, and we didn't even go picnic there. It was not not a thing you did. Um, through a strategic range of programming over a year, and the CRA spent a million dollars on it too, um, that park had a 620% increase in women using or even walking through the park in one year. And then the people just started using it more. There's um, not only picnics, but also exercise regimes and, and lots of different events that we put on were literally experiments and public experiments. You know, we were happy to fail in front of people. Some of them didn't work very well, yeah. but some of them, actually most of them took And the off. doggy things you were talking about before. Yeah, that's right. That was one of the experiments. And then out of that, um, uh, you know, a year later, completely theoretically unconnected, Hague Park Village Markets have started. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and the owners of that have worked their butt off to make that work on their own accord. But what I do hope is that the work that 
UC CRANS did was to demonstrate that this is actually a really good spot and um, it can be done in a, in a nice and culturally accepted way to have events here. And now what we're seeing is, is those dominoes falling and we're seeing yeah. more and more outcomes in the park. Um, and hopefully, I, I'm, I'm um, thinking it's going to become more of part of Lonsdale Street because there's always been a big divide at <laughs> yeah. No one really goes from Lonsdale to Hague Park yeah. or they didn't. But I think in the next few years, you're going to probably going to see a symbiotic relationship between yeah. those two places. If I'm right about this, Hague Park altogether was essentially a windbreak created at the edge of the city to prevent winds coming through. Right. And it's interesting that the wind breaks, so to speak, for the city and to becoming the dividing line in the culture. Oh, the culture, yes. <laughs> but what's interesting is he, you, we, the people, could have approached that problem completely differently. If you said someone, this park is unsafe and nobody wants to go there at night and no one picks and exceeds that. Most people would kind of go, okay, well, what we need to do is more lighting and maybe clean up the grass. The way that you've approached it with all your partners, apart from, of course, some facilities which have gone in there, which is fantastic, is you've gone, how is it they'll inject people back into it and use people power, sorry to use that phrase from the 70s, uh, in order to change the culture on how to use that space? And that is by far more long-lasting than just putting in some extra lights and you know, cutting the grass. Because you've said, here's examples of how bringing people together can make it a better space. And then it just organically grows from there, like you've mentioned, now into the markets and who knows what in the future. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of other plans for the park as well, which are really exciting. Um, I, I agree that experimenting and testing and asking people, because there's a lot of surveying going on yeah. and saying, do you, do, you, do you like this? Are you happy with this? And the overwhelming, overwhelming response was yes, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, another little example uh, on the other side of the park um, near Sullivan's Creek um, is a um, a nature play, which is which was only set up for a couple of months, but now it's been made permanent, and it's just a series of logs that were painted and and um, cut, and they're really fun, interactive <laughs> things for kids. And um, yeah, now the lighting needs to go in there. Now toilets need to go in there. Now we need to make it more accessible. Um, but just by putting some, literally some wood in a in a, in a loving way <laughs> in the park, it's it's hopefully meant that other people are meeting there. So this is not just about entertainment. This is about creating human connections through those spontaneous moments. Um, I'm a big believer of making. I want to advertise pause party on Tinder. Um, I, I've got a few um, roadblocks in that one. But, uh, you know, these are the sorts of little approaches that we can take. It's not just an event. This is future marriages. This is future relationships that we're talking about. And then with those, you start getting, and assuming they're positive relationships that are started there, which you can sort of do through marketing, right? So we can have a really positive, fun, cutesy look for pause party. The people that are attracted to that will mutually come and hopefully they'll meet. Um, and then you get like-minded people um, giving birth to the next generation, hopefully in the same vein. And then, and then you actually start seeing cultural change. That's generational cultural change. Yeah. And it needs to happen en masse. We can't just run one pause party and think that anything to do with Canberra, Canberra's culture is going to be affected. But when we do, we're probably doing about 500 programs a year now. And we hope to increase some of those um, so that when you get that larger approach, and, uh, and if it's done well, and I keep going back to that, it needs to be done well because I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist about trying to get those um, those environments right with the marketing speaking the right language, and we don't always do it right. Um, but hopefully we will be able to better in the future. 
um, hopefully we start seeing that nudge effect across all those dots mm-hmm. in the city and we start seeing nice patterns forming. And it will take years to see the outcomes. We're, we're not going to see it anytime soon. Um, we did get a bit of a pickle by becoming the city place managers. Garima Place is a really hard place. Yeah, the Civic Walk is getting better, but it's still tough. Lonsdale Street doesn't have much public realm to it, even though a lot of people are saying to us, we want to see things happen here. You can't block the street very easily. You can't block the human yeah. flow. So we've got a lot of those problems that are going to take a lot of thinking and time to work through. But we're hoping we've got another three to five years. We've just signed an agreement with the City Renewal Authority, which is a, it's a major agreement, um, certainly the biggest I've ever been a part of, to see um, cultural change happen over a long period of time. But the way that they're phrasing it is place management for three to five years. So I take that opportunity in my philosophical head and go, right, let's make as big an impact as we can in this time frame, not to try and re-sign our contract because the point of Dionysus is not financial. I want to start as a B Corp, actually. That's quite a process to go down. We were going to be a not-for-profit. The only reason we're not a not-for-profit is because I could get rolled by the board because I have to form a board and not be on it. Um, so we decided that that corporate structure was not appropriate, and unfortunately there was no other ones. So we did we did start a, a company, but it's been a bugbear for me since we started. I never really quite wanted it like that because people probably don't recognise that we don't maximise our profits. We maximise the outcomes that we can get in the places that we're operating. Yeah. And um, and I was, so, for example, I've got way more staff than I should have for the amount of money that we're generating from these contracts, but that's so we do it well. Um, and then if we can do it really well, hopefully in a few years, I might meet the child of, um, of a couple that met at an event. Actually, and I have recently. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> they've, had, they've had two kids now. Um, and, and hopefully those long-term uh, outcomes will just self-generate. And, and I, I think that you're also going to see more events pop up with this. You know, we're doing grants programs, for example, stimulating those sorts of events and, um, Another fun one is the Thingery, which we're about to launch, which is a library of things, all useful for events and your grandma's 80th birthday at the park. So you can come and get a deck chair and some genera- a generator, a little sound system, some lights and some tablecloths with some bubble machines and some big Jenga blocks. And you can just get them for free in the park and then you can put them away and hopefully people take that on as, oh, yeah, I can start getting involved in community activation mm-hmm. um and so I, i'm hoping in three years after that the thing has stimulated new people doing new things yeah. for their own selves exactly that organic thing you were talking about one thing just i gotta go back to for a moment is the profit thing now presumably i know what you mean that if if you have a profit statement somewhere within the organization the underlying principle is well you're here to make money right but truthfully though you could see it that the profit that the company makes only gets put into not a Ferrari that you're going to drive around <laughs> in the city about because I could never see you doing that, <laughs> but <laughs> rather, you know, into buying greater infrastructure for new events and all the rest of it. And in that case, it's very easy to say, well, profit isn't a dirty word. I, I, is the problem more around the fact that you're just not comfortable with the presumption that profit is actually the first thing that a company would put in front of everything else? But that's not profit, right? So if I, I've done that. I've spent over a quarter of a million dollars on the Soul Defender. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm thinking Soul Defender, by the way, is that the truck that... Yeah, so we have a big pink military truck that's uh, a mobile festival stage with a sound sound system that's getting me in continual trouble. You're you're right, but um, no one knows that 
yeah, I've got these contracts with developers and government, and then we're spending that much money on yeah. the sole defender. But people see me as, say, working with, with those organizations and just thinking that I'm going to be making a lot of money because I'm running a private company. So is that the thing that doesn't sit well with you? That's, that's yeah, because people don't recognize that Dionysus is set up not to do the profit thing, but to do the cultural thing. Right. Now, obviously, you've got to have a mix. You've got to have a sustainable company. If we were to um, continually spend too much money on our programs, I'm not solvent and I lose all my contracts and Correct. it was all a waste and then, of time. And then you can't do the change that we spoke about earlier. This is just part of the process and it's not mm. even a necessary evil. Just It is what it is to, to feed the machine in order for you to be able to do the things that you're trying to accomplish. That's right. And I still want to live a comfortable life. I like going to restaurants. I like, <laughs> I like having nice things. Um, but there's got to be a balance and I just don't think the corporate structures in Australia have recognized that. So for example, in America, you can start a, a for-good or a for-benefit organization. And what that does is means that you've started a, a, a structure that is outwardly saying, I'm not trying to make as much money as possible. Um, but in Australia, we don't have those options. Mm -hmm. And so a for-benefit um, company in America, for example, would limit how much a CEO or a director can pay themselves relative to the um, overall turnover of the yeah. organization. Um, those sorts of things are, are things that I think Australia – wants so you're seeing a lot of um new organizations saying they're um community-based organizations or they're, they're socially aligned organizations they're still companies technically according to the spirit of the law they're for-profit organizations they're built for profit um but i just feel like that's out of step with what a lot of people are trying to do with their times they, they obviously need to pay extortionate mortgages to live in in today's world um so there's still a financial yeah. Im Im impediment there you've got to you've got to do well financially in order to be successful in whatever else you want to do but i just think you could do both at the same time yeah and it's an interesting conversation because i am um, you know every time i've spoken about my career to people i could kind of distill what i'm doing down to a very basic principle let's just even talk about the time when i was at the, at the nga for three years we talk about why people are at the NGA, and most people that work there, I'd say the vast majority, are martyrs for art, absolutely believe in what the NGA stands for, but above that, what art can do for culture and society. That's what it comes down to. And it's wonderful because there's this altruistic greater cause that you're getting out of bed with every single morning, right? And that's exactly why I enjoyed working there. But sometimes, just to rub people in the meeting up the wrong way because it's entertaining, I would say if you really think about what we're here to do is we're here to sell tickets to an exhibition. So it's very easy to distill everything in life to, to actually almost kind of very pessimistic or at least kind of very basic principles like that. However, then you start to attach things which have true value to them. Indeed, I am trying to sell show and I'm trying to sell tickets to a particular show. But people will go to that show and they'll fall in love with art and they'll start a conversation and they'll take go there with other people and it brings people into Canberra and they get to discover what Canberra is and that builds culture. It's very easy for me to kind of then build back up again. Okay. Uh, philosophically, you can make a dichotomy, which is you know, a binary, two things out of, out of anything. And historically, that's been a really useful device for getting people to understand what you're trying to say mm -hmm. or to make them religious or to make them buy your product because by using those black and whites people think oh yeah i want to be with the good guy rather than the bad guy or i want to sell tickets for this exhibition forgetting the fact that we already pay taxes that own that art collection that you're putting on show um every time i sit across the table from an artist or a client 
I see them as a million opportunities at once. Mm. And that's what postmodernism uh, has taught many of us is that there are, uh, you are pregnant with potential. It's not just that you've got two options in you. We just use those two options, those binaries, in order to um, scaffold our way to understanding something. But the, the base of that philosophy is that you can start with any dichotomy you want, then work up. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting that you decided to start with the ticket sales of the NGA. I would have started with the reason we collect art. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And what I'm trying to get at is if people were to think of you as someone that's just interested in making money and that's what Dionysus does, you're ending all the opportunities that you were just talking about you should yeah. be able to see in someone. Yeah. Because that is actually the lowest common denominator. And if you think that's what someone's driven by, you will have missed on everything else. And it's the easiest thing to do. And that perhaps is one of the reasons we don't have many people in our industry is that a lot of people, when they think about starting business, it is about those basic principles of financial outcomes and also maybe living a life you're proud of. You know, mm-hmm. That's one you would throw in there. So you've got to balance being engaged with your own life, but also making money for your family and paying the bills, sure. as, as the adage goes. Um, in the cultural space, there's a really complex goal ahead of us. It's not just to make money. It's not just to make the city somewhere that the 40 to 55-year-old market want to come to. It's a really complex set of arrangements. It's so complex, in fact, that we are making a matrix um, for our, our programming that talks about our reconciliation plan outcomes, our sustainability outcomes, our ageing outcomes, our youth outcomes. Then you've got the place experience outcomes. Then you've got et cetera. Like, it literally is about eight or nine different strategies that I need to achieve in my programming for, for a single area like the city. Um, and so it should be that. Mm. You know, there's no problem with that. But to then um, to use first principles to approach something like that becomes a multifarious game. And that's when you've got these really um, diverse programs that all are being delivered at the same time. And hopefully then you've got the basic issues like are you marketing against yourself? Are you taking two front pages out that are competing with, with what you're trying to do? So there's those, those practical issues as well. And that's the space that I think we, we thrive in is that complexity. Um, and it's hard to know what the actual outcome is. You know, when I get new staff members, it's like, so what do we do? What's the point of all this? Mm. And, um, and I'm taking it back to the idea of changing perceptions of the culture of our city. Yeah. Um, now that's something we're not going to be able to do ourselves, but yeah. it is a goal. Yeah, yeah. And if we start moving towards that, yeah. and then the more funding we get in order to be able to achieve that, the more collaborators and partners that we get to achieve that, the faster we will achieve it. It's not an end point. You can't um, have changed, full stop, the perceptions of Canberra. It'll always just be bumped left and right. You may have seen the big um, the big bubbles, the big circles that we put in um, Civic Square for Enlighten. Um, they were just about nudging the perceptions of the city. Think, oh, I wouldn't have thought this would happen in Canberra. That was a world premiere um, of, a, of a huge artwork, and it's, it's never happened. Uh, something like that hasn't happened in that environment before. By putting that there and welcoming people in an inclusive way, um, hopefully people just thought slightly differently. Now, if we do that consistently for three to five years, what I'm hoping is that people's perception of the city will change. Yeah. And also there's a sad joke in there about Canberra bubbles altogether. But there was, and we put that in front of the Legislative Assembly. I'm glad you saw it. All right, I've picked it up. <laughs> no, it's actually weirdly answered one of my questions. I was going to ask you whether you truly enjoy the complexity of what you're talking about here. Because I think 
it would do a lot of people's heads in, including mine, to kind of have to think of so many things at once, both at a long term and a short term, plus all the practical things you've just mentioned, right? There's, there's a lot in there. Yeah. But I, I can hear it. You've just said you, you're experts in this and you're essentially you really enjoy that process. In fact, I think if something was simple, you'd probably get super bored, right? I would. I'd probably yeah. do something else. Yeah. So your interest in philosophy early on was actually very much related to that because in basic principles, philosophy isn't providing you with a singular answer. Philosophy is about a dialogue and conversation, a battle of ideas, which a lot of people struggle with, I know, which is why people say, oh, philosophy, it's a bullshit artist, mate. That whole entire thing, that's probably the worst Australian accent I've ever accent. done. I liked it. So anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to do any other accents apart from my Come own. Come on, mate. Um, but do you think that is exactly the thing that gets you so attracted to the complexity of the thing you're dealing with here? Yeah, if I could deconstruct that just a little bit. Um, I don't think philosophy is about this, the thinking. Okay. Um, I mean, by definition, philosophy is the love of wisdom. You don't just love ideas. I think you love the outcomes of those ideas. That's why I didn't want to write books and essays. What I love is seeing the outcomes of this thinking. Yeah. So that's what Dionysus is trying to do is to think and form these complex financial models and programs to then have the opportunity to meet the child of the friends that met at Sound and Fury 10 years ago. <laughs> And that's what I love. That's what yeah. compels me. And um, Hague Park was a nice nice thing to be able to actually touch to some degree to say we did have some impact there with a huge amount of collaborators. I want to really emphasize this collaboration yeah. side of it. Um, and and those sorts of outcomes is what I get really excited about. And then the, the short-term burst, because I'm a bit of a, a wild child. I'm a skydiver, actually. I love skydiving. Um, is that we get to put on fairly big and risky events and and you get a kick out of that every every time you do it so that keeps me going but then those longer term cultural outcomes of of meeting that child or seeing people think differently about an environment and then set up their lifestyle in that like, how many people have come to some of our events that as artists and then said oh, i could move to canberra you know that is another mm. real um kick that we yeah. get and in fact there is a there's an artist that's looking at coming to canberra after doing some performances that we organized recently and it would be a boon for canberra if he can yeah. comes here because he's a big deal yeah and plus this is a great lifestyle city so i'm sure they're amazing love city yeah. and people are so intelligent that's one thing that i love and um people have a bit more time and headspace here and there's a there's a real bustle especially in sydney you know melbourne's a hot city there's no denying it yeah. but um i i would i would live in canberra over sydney any life that i could possibly live i mean yeah. this is where i'd prefer to be um it's bloody cold. That is cold. <laughs> Especially <laughs> now. But we just bought, um, I think we're spending, I probably shouldn't say, but an enormous amount of money on fire for the winter festival, yep. which is going to be opening next week in the city um, because you've just got to take these problems as opportunities. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and we, we need to, pardon the pun, embrace the winter and, and, and kind of own it. I think that's it. Hey, if Tasmania can do it, so can we. Um, and of course, all the cold countries in Europe. <laughs> you know, I think I heard a rumor that they spend about 10 million on Dark Mofo, noting that that was off the back of the success of Mofo, which was started in summer. Yeah. So even if we just threw $10 million at a festival for next winter, um, which we don't have the capability to d deliver anyway, even as a city, because Dark Mofo is very impressive, but 
um, we would have had to start a summer component based on that model to even have the success of the winter. And that's, that's one of the real challenges of Canberra's cultural programming is that winter space. And um, someone's going to crack it one day soon. Oh, it's I'm, I'm so certain hard. Of it. Absolutely certain of that. Yeah. And even either on an individual level. So what I mean by that is an organization might actually put on an event that ends up being bigger and bigger and ends up involving the public. I kind of get the feeling it might kind of originate there, you know, with a base principle of whatever it's trying to achieve for its own stakeholders and then realize actually it's an attractive proposition or it'll happen from a like on top arching uh, thing such as yours. Where but you 10 million, just it just doesn't sack up. The city can't go and spend $10 million no. on a winter festival. It doesn't work. Hey, but but by that notion, I was speaking to uh, Vicky Cotter from Visabel. She's you know, amazing. Yeah, yep. um, literally just on a train in Sydney two days ago. And it was just the end of Vivid. And I said, hang on a second, did you not used to work on Vivid? And she goes, yeah, yeah, it was me and three other people that kind of worked on the creative production mm. side of it to kick it off. And look at it now, you know, as I look at it now in terms of the money that's going into that through sponsors and all this other stuff, which is getting spent on amazing installations with really complicated technicalities mm. and, and look what it's done. Now, the purpose of that, again, distilling things to a very basic principle was always do something cool so more tourists come here. We need to be able to piggyback off that. But now it's become a cultural thing, right? It's, yeah. it's way more than just attracting tourism. But they, de- but they generate $176 million for the economy. Okay. And, but all of this started with three people doing some small flashing lights somewhere. Right? I'm sure it was better than that. And so your excitement about base ideas creating something greater is, you know, you're right, we probably don't have 10 million to throw at something, but maybe there is a million and it's a collaboration yeah. between different organizations yeah. and maybe that's enough to make it sustainable and then it goes up to 2 million the following year and then et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and we should do that in summer or autumn or spring <laughs> because um, attracting here people here with a million dollars at winter is still going to make them think it's cold. But don't get me wrong, we can have the Canberra region come here and have uh, – we're going to have – Beautiful hot chocolates, and they're going to be served with marshmallows and sticks. And so you can go and toast your marshmallows on the fire in these beautiful teepees that we've got next to the ice rink. And um, and you can stick the marshmallows in your hot chocolate and eat it and drink it and go for your ice skate. And um, we'll put a winter concert on. And there'll be some beautiful uh, occurrences there. It is not necessarily that tourism driver at that national level, yeah. but Canberra does need to crack that. I've got one little story. I'm yeah. sure we've got to wrap up soon. But um, I was at my grandfather's retirement resort, they call it, um, which is it's an old people's home, but everyone has individual living. It's a nice one. You know, they've got a little bit of money. So um, on the notice board in the tea room, I was there a couple of years ago. And I had the great joy of reading the notice board and, you know, someone's lost cat and they want to go and have tea over there. And, and, but there's the bus to Floriad. And so someone has handwritten a note saying, if you would like to go to Floriad, I think that each, co- each person was like two and a half grand and that got you the accommodation and whatever. And please write your name below. It was not only full <laughs> with about, I don't know, 20, 30 people on that page. They then had to get another piece of paper and they could see them writing around the margins of all these people <laughs> that wanted to drive from Werribee in Victoria yep. 
all the way up to Canberra to come and see Floriad. That's a sign of a successful event. Yeah, for I, sure. I think that is a hundred percent win for Floriad. Good I, on I love the fact that it's on a piece of paper rather than just text this number or <laughs> no, you know, they lost mes- their phone, me- every message day. me or whatever. <laughs> no, none of that. Not even a fax. We just need to do something like that for uh, different demographics and different ages. Yeah, um, it is possible to do it, um, but I think the spring idea was pretty clever of the government to, yeah. to land it there. Um, but it is certainly something we're thinking about. Hmm. I'm actually going to Athens soon to research a festival that started two and a half thousand years ago um, to get some ideas and um, some models. Is it a winter festival? No. Okay. <laughs> maybe I was just thinking, maybe you need to be sent over to like Iceland or something for one of their festivals and saying, how do they do this? They've got some great artists coming out of Iceland. They've got great musicians too. Um, one other thing that I wanted to kind of finish up on, uh, and this was a fun thing for me, but I, I don't know how long you and I have known each other. I, I can't actually pinpoint where you and I met. I think I met you at Academy when I was 18 and you were DJing and I thought you were really cool. (laughs) (laughs) And then one year later, I thought you weren't. But anyway, yes, all right, so maybe that. But I don't know when when would have been the first time you and I actually had a conversation, which was longer than, hey, what was that track and like just sat, whatever we might have said to each other. Do you want to come and play at my house party? Exactly, (laughs) whatever whatever it was. Because I distinctly remember coming home and telling my partner that time that – it's really great. I spoke to Dave and he's the only person I know that quotes philosophy in a conversation without it being in the least bit pretentious and completely applicable. The idea that you actually picked out different conversations, theories, ideas from past philosophers and you would just literally quote that in the conversation and then say, and because they said that, that's the thinking that I apply. So you kind of show it's not just a statement to think and ponder on, but rather the application of how that thought can be transferred to something that we're talking about right now. And I absolutely loved it. I'm thinking, apart from my dad, I can't think of anyone else that does that kind of thing and doesn't lose people in the conversation, you know. That's a lovely compliment. I think it uh, shows the difference between analytic and content continental philosophers yep. uh, analytic philosophers love that well um david Chalmers said this about the mind and then <laughs> we go forward and suddenly you've just lost the flow of the yep. conversation um but continental philosophy is more focused on what is called the dionysian or the uh, the emotional framework that we're working in so we're more feeling it out rather than we are thinking it out yeah. and then um you want to have a good conversation more so than you do want to impart philosophy of course that's otherwise no one's going to come back and have another chat with you you don't want to be preaching at people with with that but you do want to share that you do know something about someone else's ideas and then you know you're contributing to the conversation by bringing that up do you still read a lot? Do you still yeah, keep on? Yeah, you do. Yeah. Okay, so you're keeping that very fresh. Well, maybe I'll ask you this. For those who might be interested in it, but are thinking, what is that world of complexity is philosophy? And, you know, I don't have time to go through all of it the way Dave must have no, in his life. So much time. Yeah. Where, where do you point them to, to go, okay, here's something you might find really interesting that's very applicable. Is there any particular philosophers or particular school of thoughts that you'd point people to so they can go, oh, I can see how philosophical thought can be applicable to my life without it being exactly pretentious or preachy or what have you. There's a group called the School of Life who are way more clever than I am and they have made it um, made philosophy approachable using 21st century media. Mm-hmm. So they've got a YouTube channel 
and they've got podcasts, they've got amazing books. They wrote a book called What is Culture For? That's an incredible place to start. And it's a tiny little book. You can read it in a couple of s- small sittings. Um, Sounds good to me. And there's another one called, literally called The Meaning of Life. And they have summarized Nietzsche, they've summarized Aristotle, and they've done all that hard work for you. And they lay it out in 21st century metaphors that are just really approachable. Um, and their, their, their um, videos are really fun as well. Um, so the School of Life is a wonderful place to start. It's a good question too, Ash. And then if you want to get a bit deeper, um, I'd actually just suggest you stay in their framework because then they've got, say, key ideas from Nietzsche yep. or key ideas from that's nice. Kant or whoever yeah. it is. And um, that's a great way to go. And then once you're like, you've chosen your philosophers that you like, then you can start reading those primary yeah, texts. exactly. I, you just said something a second ago, which was oh, the hard work's been done for you. Actually, that's the way I see philosophers. They've literally spent all this time trying to think something out on your humanity's behalf, just so they can say to you, well, here's what I think. And then you can usually get a pretty good digest out of that through exactly reading articles and what have you. And then you're all that much wiser for what they said and you haven't didn't have to spend, you know, decades thinking this through. Reading about detachment, but then you, for example, um, Michael Liu, a dear friend of mine, I got him a book because he was addicted to his phone. He still is, if you you know him. Um, I bought him this book from the School of Life. It's a, it was about your, your phone. It's in the shape of a telephone. It's quite fun. And um, <laughs> okay. he came to work the next day after I gave it to him. And um, I asked him a question that involved him checking his phone. And he said, shit. He looked at me in complete shock. And he went fully white, which is unlike him. And he forgot his phone. He actually forgot his phone when he came to work the next day after reading that little book. Um, so whatever they're saying, it, it works quite well. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's about well, changing perceptions, right? Yeah, and fun. exactly, they did all this hard work on thinking about how you know mobile phone affects you so that Michael could read this tiny little book and look at the effect. He forgot his phone, Yeah, awesome. which, is, which is a positive in, in that respect. I remember when I was a, a child, the very first book that my mum read to me was The Little Prince. And it didn't hit me, obviously I was a little bit older, that is technically a philosophical book, you know, written in a, in a kind of very entertaining way. Um, and it's stayed with me. And I'm, you know, my knowledge of philosophy is nothing like yours. And I probably don't apply it the, the same way that you would. But there are moments, I do remember what Immanuel Kant said and some of his phrases and thoughts and then I realized they have influenced very much my vision of politics and society and culture, which is a completely different conversation and yeah. a separate podcast. But anyway, yeah, so I think it's, it's good to kind of maybe just take those little pearls of wisdoms and see if they affect yeah. you through your life later on. And those that resonate with you are probably ones that were boiling under the surface of your consciousness that you kind of felt already. Mm-hmm. And then they just brought it to consciousness yeah. a bit by, by phrasing it or articulating it in yeah. a certain way. Well, look, this has been a really fun conversation. I've, I've, I've been meaning to reach out to you for a while, but I was just like thinking, it's, when's the right moment, just in terms of the Thank you, structure Ash. of things. Appreciate it. And congratulations on getting married. Thank you so much. And congratulations to you for getting married, Thank you. too. Very we've, lucky. We've kind of decided to use the same uh, period of time, right? Yeah, look at, look at this culture growing up just between you and I. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I know. We're spreading. Um, all right, well... <laughs> It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Ash. 
So that was my conversation with Dave Caffrey. I hope you enjoyed an insight not only into him, but also all the work that he does and potentially all the work that he's going to do in the future, organically or otherwise. Now, if you'd like to get involved and check out some of the events that Dave is running, then head over to the Darnas' website. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, then I encourage you to do so. The best thing to do is probably via Instagram at Behind the Bio Podcast, or if you prefer, then Ashley underscore Farode at Outlook.com. Again, thanks so much to Coordinate for making this series possible, and I hope you can tune in to the next conversation on Behind the Bio.